0: Welcome to Read By, a new podcast where today's finest authors read what matters to them, from their homes to yours. In this episode, Meg Wolitzer reads Sundays, a short story by Hilma Wolitzer. To learn more from Wolitzer about her choice, check out the episode description. And now, read by Meg Wolitzer.
1: Sundays by Hilma Wolitzer. Howard is the beauty in this family. Even the mirrors in our apartment are hung at his eye level. I don't mind. What's wrong with a little role reversal anyway? What's so bad about a male sex object for a change? That ability to sprout hair like dark fountains, the flat tapering planes of their buttocks and hips, and oh, those hands and erections pointing the way to bed like road markers. Besides, I have my own good points, not the least of them my disposition. Sunny, radiant, I wake with the same dumb abundance of hope every day. The bed always seems too small to contain both me and that expansion of joy. It's only Thursday or Sunday. It's only my own flesh, pale and sleep-creased, and smelling like bread near my rooting nose. Nothing special has happened, for which I am grateful. Anything might happen, for which I am expectant and tremblingly ready. On the other hand, Howard is depressed, hiding in the bedclothes, moaning in his dream. Even without opening my eyes, I can feel the shape of his mood beside me. Then my eyes do open. Ta-da! Another gorgeous day. Just what I expected. The clock hums, electric, containing its impulse to tick. The wallpaper repeats itself around the room, and Howard burrows into his pillow, refusing to come to terms with the dangers of consciousness. My hand is as warm and as heavy as a baby's head, and I lay it against his neck, palm up. If I let him sleep, he would do it for hours and hours. That's depression. Years ago, my mother woke me with a song about a bird on a sill, and about sunshine and flowers and the glorious feeling of being alive that had nothing in the world to do with the sad, still life of a school lunch and the reluctant walk in Brown, Oxford's One Foot and Then the Other for Six Blocks. It had nothing to do with that waxed ballroom of a gymnasium and the terrible voice of the whistle that demanded agility and grace, where there were only clumsy confusion and an enormous desire to be the other girl on the other team, the one leaping in memory toward baskets and dangling ropes. I didn't want to get up either, at least not until I had grown out of it, grown away from teachers, grown out of that thin body in an undershirt and Lyle stockings and garter belt abrasive on white hip bones. I would get up when I was good and ready, when it was all over and I could have large breasts and easy friendships. Howard blames his depression on real things in his real life because he doesn't believe in the unconscious. At parties where all the believers talk about the interpretation of dreams, about wish fulfillment and surrogate symbols, Howard covers his mouth with one hand and mutters, Bullshit! Is he depressed because his parents didn't want him to be born? Because his mother actually hoisted his father in her arms every morning for a month, hoping to bring on that elusive period? Not a chance. Is he sad because his sister was smarter in school or at least more successful? Or because she seduced him to the point of action and then squealed? Never. He is depressed, he says because it starts to rain when he's at a ball game and the men pulling the tarpaulin over the infield seem to be covering a grave. He is sad, he says, because his boss is a prick and the kid living upstairs roller skates in the kitchen. Ah, Howard. My hand is awake now, buzzing with blood and it kneads the flesh of his neck and then his back works down through the warm tunnel of bedclothes until it finds his hand and squeezes hard. It's a gorgeous day, lover. Hey, kiddo, wake up and I'll tell you something. Howard opens his eyes, but they are glazed and without focus. Huh? Do you know what? Searching my head for therapeutic news. His vision finds the room, the morning light, his whole life. His eyes close again. Howard, it's Sunday, the day of rest. The paper is outside, thick and juicy, hot off the press. I'll make waffles and sausages for breakfast. "'Do you want to go for a drive in the country?' "'Oh, for Christ's sake, will you leave me alone? "'I want to sleep.' "'Sleep?' "'Sweetheart, you'll sleep enough when you're dead.' "'I see that idea roll behind his eyelids, deaf. "'What next?' "'The children whisper like lovers in the other bedroom. "'Come on, sleepyhead, get up. "'We'll visit model homes. "'We'll look in the paper for some new ones.' "'I pat him on the buttocks, a loving but fraternal gesture, "'a manager sending his favorite man into the game.' Why am I so happy? It must be the triumph of the human spirit over genetics and environment. I know the same bad things Howard knows. I have my ups and downs, traumas, ecstasies. Maybe this happiness is only a dirty trick, another of life's big come-ons. I might end up the kind who can't ride on escalators or sit in chairs that don't have arms. Who knows? But in the meantime, I sing as I whip up waffle batter, pour golden juice into golden glasses, while Howard sits in a chair, dropping pages of the times like leaves from a deciduous tree. I sing songs from the 40s, thinking there's nothing in this life like the comfort of your own nostalgia. I sing ferryboat serenade. I sing hut sut Ralston on the Rilla raw The waffles stick to the iron. Don't sit under the apple tree with anyone else but me, I warn Howard willing the waffle and coffee smells into the living room where he sits like an inmate in the wintry garden of a small sanatorium. Breakfast is ready! I have the healthy bellow of a short-order cook. He shuffles in, still convalescing from his childhood. The children come in, too, his jewels, his treasures. They climb his legs to reach the table to scratch themselves on his morning beard. Daddy, my daddy! And he runs his hands over them, a blind man trying to memorize their bones. What's the matter, Howie? If something is bothering you, talk about it. He smiles, that calculated, ironic smile, and I think that we hardly talk about anything that matters. I waited all my life to become a woman, damn it, to sit in a kitchen and say grown-up things to the man facing me, words that would float like vapor over the heads of the children. Don't I remember that language from my own green days, code words in Yiddish and Pig Latin, and a secret but clearly sexual jargon that made my mother laugh and filled me with a dark and trembling longing and rage? Ixnay, the idke. Now I want to talk over the heads of my children in the modern language of the cinema. There are thousands of words they wouldn't understand and would never remember, except for the rhythm and the mystery. Fellatio, Howard vasectomy. He rattles the real estate section and slowly turns the pages. Well, did you find a development for us? Find one with a really inspired name this time. I try so hard to encourage him. Looking at model homes has become a standard treatment for Howard's depression. For some reason, we believe the long drive out of the city, the ordered march through unlived-in rooms, restores him. Not that we want to live in the suburbs. How we laugh and poke one another at the roped off bedrooms hung in velvet drapery, the plastic chickens roosting in warm refrigerators. The thing is, places like that confirm our belief in our own choices. We're safe here in the city, in our tower among towers, fly specks, so to speak, in the population. On other days, we've gone to Crestwood Estates, Seaside Manor, miles from any sea to tall oaks and sweet pines, to Chateau Printemps, and Chalet on the Sound. But the pickings are slim now. All the worthwhile land has been gobbled up by speculators, and those tall oaks and sweet pines fall into bulldozers. There are hardly any developments left for our sad Sundays. The smart money is in garden apartments and condominiums, cities without skylines. Maybe later, when we're older, we'll visit the Happy Haven and the Golden Years Retreat to purge whatever comes with mortality and the final vision. But now, Howard is trying. Here's one, he says. Don Castle Greens, only 50 minutes from the heart of Manhattan, live like a king on a commoner's budget. Let me see. I rush to his side, ready for conspiracy. Hey, listen to this. Come on down today and choose either a 21-inch color TV or a deluxe dishwasher as a bonus, absolutely free. "'Howie, what do you choose?' "'But Howard chooses silence, "'will not be conjoled so easily, "'so early in his depression. "'I hide the dishes under a veil of suds "'and we all get dressed. "'The children are too young to care where we're going. "'As long as they can ride in the car, "'the baby steering crazily in her car seat, "'and Jason contemplating the landscape "'and the faces of other small boys "'poised at the windows of other cars. "'The car radio sputters news and music "'and frantic advice.' It is understood that Howard will drive there and I will drive back. He sits forward, bent over the wheel, as if visibility is poor and the traffic hazardous. In fact, it's a marvelous, clear day, and the traffic is moving without hesitation past all the exits, past the green signs and the abandoned wrecks like modern sculpture at roadside, past dead dogs, their brilliant innards squeezed out onto the divider. Jason points, always astounded at the first corpse, but we are past it before he can speak. It occurs to me that everywhere here there are families holding dangling leashes and collars, walking through the yards of their neighborhoods, calling, Lucky, Lucky, and then listening for that answering bark that will not come. Poor Lucky, deader than a doornail, flatter than a bathmat. I watch Howard, that gorgeous nose, so often seen in profile, that crisp gangster's hair, and his ear, unspeakably vulnerable, waxen and convoluted. And then we are there. Don Castle Greens is a new one for us. The builder obviously dreamed of moats and grazing sheep. Model number one, the Shropshire, recalls at once gloomy castles and thatched cottages, Richard the Third and Miss Marple. Other cars are already parked under the colored banners when we pull in. The first step is always the brochure, wonderfully new and smelly with printer's ink. The motif is British, of course, and there are tap rooms and libraries as opposed to the dens and fun rooms of Crestwood Estates, les salons et les chambres de Château Printemps. Quel savvy. The builder's agent is young and balding, busy sticking little flags into promised lots on a huge map behind his desk. He calls us folks. Good to see you, folks. Every once in a while, he rubs his hands together as if selling homes makes one cold. During his spiel, I try to catch Howard's eye, but Howard pretends to be listening. What an actor. We move in a slow line through Model 1, behind an elderly couple. I know we've seen them before, at Tall Oaks, perhaps, but there are no greetings exchanged. They'll never buy, of course, and I wonder about their motives, which are probably more devious than ours. Some of the people I can see are really buyers.' One wife holds her husband's hand as if they are entering consecrated premises. I poke Howard just below the heart, a bully's semaphore. I can talk without moving my lips. White brocade couch on bow legs, I mutter. Definitely velvet carpeting. I wait, but Howard is grudging. Plastic-covered lampshades, he offers, finally. I urge him on. Crossed rifles over the fireplace, thriving plastic drakina in the entrance. I snicker. Roll my eyes, do a little soft shoe. Howard, tentative, nervous. You know, kiddo, it's not really that bad, he says. Do you mean the house? Howard doesn't answer. The older man takes a tape measure from his pocket and lays it against the dark molding. Then he writes something into a little black notebook. The buyers breathe on our necks, staring at their future. Oh, Ronnie, she says, an exhalation like the first chords of a hymn. I would not be surprised if she kneels now or makes some other mysterious or religious gesture. One of these days, Howard says, pow, one of us will be knocked on the head in that crazy city, raped, strangled. Howie, and do we have an adequate bookshelf? You know, I have no room for my books. The oak bookshelves before us hold all the volumes, A through Z, of the American Household Encyclopedia. The old man measures the door frame and writes again in his book, Perhaps he will turn around soon and measure us, recording his findings in a feathery hand. Jason and another boy discover one another and stare like mirrors. What would happen if we took the wrong one home, bathed him and gave him frosted flakes, kissed him and left the nightlight on until he forgot everything else and adjusted? The baby draws on her pacifier and dreamily pats my hair. Everyone else has passed us and Howard is still in the same doorway. I pull on his sleeve... The baby is getting heavy. He takes her from me and she nuzzles his cheek with her perfect head. We proceed slowly to the master bathroom, the one with the dual vanities and a magazine rack embossed with a colonial eagle. Howie, will you look at this? His and hers. He doesn't answer. We go into the bedroom itself where ghosts of dead queens rest on the carved bed. Mortgages, cesspools, community living. I face him across the bed and hiss the words at him, but he does not even wince. He looks sleepy and relaxed. I walk around the bed and put my arm through his. Maybe we ought to join marriage encounter after all. Maybe we look in the wrong places for our happiness, Howard. He pats my hand, distracted but solicitous. I walk behind him now, a tourist following a guide. At the old breakfast nook, I want to sit him down and explain that I am terrified of change, that the city is my hideout and my freedom, that one of us might take a lover or worse. But I am silent in the pantry, in the wine cellar and the vestibule, and we are finished with the tour of the house, evicted before occupation. We stand under the fluttering banners and watch the serious buyers re-enter the builder's trailer. Howard shifts the baby from arm to arm as if she interferes with his concentration. Finally, he passes her to me without speaking. He puts his hands into his pockets, and he has that dreaming look on his face. I'll drive back, I say, as if this weren't preordained. There is more traffic now, and halfway home we slow to observe the remains of an accident. Some car has jumped the guardrail, and there is a fine icing of shattered glass on the road. Do you see, I say, not sure of my moral. But Howard is asleep, his head tilted against the headrest. At home, I can see that he's coming out of it. He's interested in dinner in the children's bath. He stands behind me at the sink and he has an erection. Later, in bed again, I get on top for the artificial respiration I must give. His mouth opens to receive my tongue, a communion wafer. I rise above him, astounded at the luminosity of my skin in the half-light. Howard smiles, handsome, damp with pleasure. Yes, with happiness. His ghosts, mugged and banished from this room... Are you happy, I must know, restorer of faith, giver of life? Are you happy? And even as I wait for his answer, my own ghosts enter, stand solemn at the foot of the bed, thin girls in undershirts, jealous and watchful, whispering in some grown-up language, I can never
0: understand. 92Ys Read By is produced and commissioned by New York's 92Y Underberg Poetry Center, a home for live readings of literature for over 80 years. To invite more authors into your home, subscribe to 92Ys Read By wherever you download podcasts. If you enjoyed this recording, please share it with a friend. Tag us on Twitter or Facebook, 92Y Poetry Center, and let us know your favorites. If you extra enjoyed and you're able in this uncertain time, Please visit 92y.org/helpnow to donate to support 92y and its new digital programming. We rely on your contributions. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Find more great readings at 92y.org/archives.